Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I would say around a year after he passed away, I decided that I wanted to get physically strong. And it was really heavily, heavily linked to the fact that I just couldn't really lift stuff. Like it was literally as, as literal as wanting to lift my own suitcase, move my stuff around my house because I, I was imminently about to move house. And just realizing that I really didn't want to ask someone for help. When you conjure up an idea of what strength looks like, would it be physical muscles you'd see? Here at Give Me Strength, we believe that strength doesn't look a certain way. For some, it may be the kilograms on their deadlift, but for others, it may be overcoming challenges that life can throw at us or developing a resilience through difficult experiences. My name is Alice Living. I'm a personal trainer, best-selling author and influencer who knows only too well that strength is so much more than being just about the physical. And it's my mission now to use this podcast to inspire you with stories from people who've had to find courage through the most challenging or darkest of times and who can help all of us to be inspired to be not just physically, but mentally stronger too. Welcome to Give Me Strength.
Welcome to this week's episode of Give Me Strength, where I am being joined by women who I've admired and followed online for so long, and I am just so thrilled that we are now finally sitting in the same room for this podcast. Porna Bell is a best-selling author and award-winning journalist, writing for publications such as The Times, Grazia, and Stylist magazine for 15 years, as well as being a public speaker. Last year, she won the Stylist Rising Star Award and a Big Book Award for her second book, In Search of Silence, and was named in Marie Claire's Top 30 Women for Doing Good with Her Social Media. On social media, she is someone who champions opening up the conversation around mental health, discussing her own personal experiences, whilst also championing positive messaging around recovery, life after trauma, and how exercise has become one of her saviours. She also recently founded the incredible community called See My Strong, which can be found over on Instagram. I am so honoured to be joined by you today. Welcome, Porna. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was the nicest intro. Oh, well, it's all you. It's everything you've done. Thank you so much for being here. So I am someone that has just um, read your books. And actually, I think I read your book before I even knew who you were. And then found you on Instagram, found you on on Twitter, where I find you actually particularly enjoyable. (laughs) Um, Twitter is like a, definitely a platform where you get to be a little bit more feisty, I think. You you definitely do. Like whenever someone I don't know says that they follow me on Twitter, my first response <laughs> is, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's just, I find that Twitter for me is just so, it's such a good place to test out your sense of humour and also just to have banter yeah. with people. But also like, I don't know, I feel like because the characters are shorter and if the risk feels less high because it just it's out there and it's gone and it's yeah. done. I just feel like you can say the things that you, you might not say on over on insta anyway i want to start by taking you back and i want to hear about your upbringing i know that you lived in india for a while in was it bangalore in bangalore yeah yeah, which is on the south amazing and i just want to hear a little bit about growing up basically what did porna do as a little kid what were you like (laughs) i was very like little i mean like little in actual size so um, (laughs) yeah so i was always the (laughs) smallest person i think in a class and and i was born and, and brought up here but when i was seven my parents decided that they wanted to bring up my sister and i in india and all of our like a lot of our family is still there to be honest so we kind of began this transition of moving to India and it, it certainly was a culture shock mm. in terms of coming from England and and being there but I think that what made up for cultural differences for me was just I think the realisation that I was surrounded by basically people that looked like me and not realising that that was actually something that I'd possibly felt when I was in England. Mm. India was amazing for a lot of things in terms of just making friends, just really having, being immersed in in that cultural identity for, you know, five solid years. But there were also some really difficult parts of it, which is that, you know, you're kind of like our dad was still based in England and it just always felt like there were different parts of us kind of scattered around. Yeah. When I was 12, my dad, I think, just made the decision. So he he's a retired doctor, but I think he just sort of looked at the state of how medicine was being practiced and just decided that he couldn't do it. So we all basically moved back. Mm. And that transition back from India into secondary school was a very, very different Because that's such an transition. awkward time where you're like, you're not an adult, but you're not a kid yeah. and you're trying to find yourself. I feel like secondary school is such a time when your identity is formed and you try and form sort of social groups and mm. social identities. 
That must have been really hard. It was really tough because when I was in India, I was re- I mean, okay, this hasn't really changed about me, but I I was very, very chatty, very, I would say, used to being one of the loudest kind of voices. Didn't really fearless, I would say, actually. If I wanted something I really wanted, mm. I, I had like no problem about going for it. And I felt that when I came back to secondary school here, you know, I was this very kind of loving, um, fearless kid and was then in a an environment where I didn't really know what the rules were and I didn't mm. really know and when I say rules I don't mean, you know, school rules. I mean like social rules. So ah. for example, like a really big difference for me was that, you know, if you are clever in India in the schooling system, you know, that's a that's a really good thing. That's encouraged. You you get a lot of respect from your classmates when you are like that in England you basically get called a boffin and the most clever kids in school you know are often the ones that are probably bullied that's awful isn't it 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 is Mm. I mean I think that I mean by the grace of God I was neither super brainy but um so it wasn't one of those things where I felt that I was singled out but I was obviously singled out because I just dressed differently and my Mm. accent was different and so I think that for me just that understanding that to be able to make friends and fit in that I would have to drop a lot of the things that I think I'd just taken for granted that to me was I think the start of just learning how to deal with things as they're kind of coming towards you and reacting to them and not really giving much thought beyond it yeah. other than survival. Because you spoke in your book about periods in your childhood where you were desperately wanting to distance yourself from your heritage. There was an incident with like chocolate, I think, where you were absolutely mortified. Yes. Yeah. And I remember reading that and I think at a time when how you look and and behave, it matters so much to teenagers. Like with each year we get older, I think we care a little bit less. I don't know. I've personally found that. I still care a lot, but I care less than when I was like 13 and everything mattered so much. So those things were so important. They were hugely important. I mean, the chocolate incident that you described was basically when a friend had come over, I think it was like for the day or something like that, and um, had asked for some chocolate and there was some chocolate in the fridge and I gave it to her. And then afterwards, fast forward a few days later, Later, you know, a different friend basically said, oh, you know, so-and-so went to your house and said that chocolate tasted really funny and really weird. But she kind of made out like it was this really shameful, you know, thing. And I was just like, I don't understand what the big deal is. And then I realised basically the reason why the chocolate tasted the way it did was because it had been bunged in the same veggie box with like garlic and onions, which are like the staples that you use in Indian cooking. Mm. And that may not sound like a big deal, but basically back then... Anything that betrayed otherness, so whether that is your clothes smelling of Indian food or even something like garlic and onions, was something that, you know, I'm definitely not alone in this. We would go to like great lengths to kind of stamp out anything that really showed that you were different from the rest of the kids Mm. in school. And very often, you know, my Indianness was part of that. Fast forward to today and I look at how like Diwali is celebrated and how Indian food is just kind of like a staple in households, no matter matter what your culture is I think it's an incredible thing but back then it definitely definitely wasn't like that and I think that 
the one thing I think that saved me from that was that I knew I was also Indian. Like it wasn't because we'd spent those five years there. Mm. There was a part of my identity that was very that understood that that understood it was very rooted in that. Mm. But yeah, and in, in, for sure, in terms of like other aspects of myself that really I should have been a bit freer with mm. and should have just embraced a bit more. I think I just sectioned off and didn't really allow that to show or allow myself to access that for a really long time. Yeah. So I wanted to know what your experience was like with mental health when you were growing up. I know that you spoke about in your book that you hadn't really known anyone that had experienced mental health. And remember this line where you said, there was one girl, but she got better or something like that. And that was your perception of it before you Mm. met Rob. And I wondered if you could talk about what the kind of landscape of mental health was like when you were growing up. I mean, there was no landscape, really. Mm. It was non-existent. I think that when, especially when I was in India, I remember this, um, there was a psychiatric hospital that was near my school. And it was kind of, it only ever came up in conversation when you wanted to kind of say, oh, you know, if you don't behave well or if you said something, let's say some, that someone thought was a bit weird, mm. they would say, oh, you need to go to Nimans, which was the name of the hospital. And so for me, that, that idea of mental illness, which wasn't even really an idea, it was just kind of maybe this notion, um, was very kind of like, you know, the old like bedlam style images of, of what someone might be struggling with. It wasn't something that we knew anyone in our family had. Mm. Um, it wasn't something that for sure friends seemed to struggle with. Mm. So I think that the friend that I referenced in the book where, where you know, I said that she'd had depression, I mean... Age-wise, like this is still like I would say late 20s. You know, that's the first time that someone I knew um, said that they'd had depression or a mental illness. And I think previously before that, you know, because I've had to kind of go through a lot of my childhood memories or just... You know, people in our sort of friends and family circles that Mm. people spoke about in Mm. this way of them just being very strange, very angry, really argumentative. And now when I look back at a lot of those stories and a lot of those people, it's very, very clear that they were struggling with Mm. mental health. Mm. And I think as well, those kind of first images of what mental health is when you're a kid is really like it stays with you and I think a lot of the time they are presented as being a bit mad and those connotations that you develop from a young age mean that if you did get to an age where you started to struggle why why on earth would you then come out and say oh you know what I'm, I think I'm having issues because you you immediately think that you're going to be labeled as crazy and I know that it's maybe not a young person's film but I remember watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and just being like oh my god that portrayal of mental illness is so far from what normality is for most people in terms of of what they experience when it comes to mental illness. And I don't, it's a great film, but I don't know if it necessarily does many people a service in terms of being able to normalise it and make it seem as though it's something that, that can happen to anyone. Um, I agree. I mean, even something like schizophrenia. I mean, schizophrenia is the most maligned mental illness when it mm. comes to how it's depicted in film. And that has only really changed recently. Mm. I mean, there are quite a few films I could think of that even depict depression in a in a really unhelpful way of it's something to be fixed of it's something that the other person has brought upon themselves or is doing on purpose and so on I think that retrospectively I just don't think we had enough knowledge about things for even to filter into TV and film and media and so on and things have definitely improved but there is long-lasting damage from 
from all of that that we all have to unravel and unpick and mm. just you know take the time I think to understand because it took a really long time for me to understand that mental illness is a spectrum and that actually there are different approaches to it so you I mean you know the whole conversation about you know we need to open up we should mm. talk we need to remove the stigma and that is that is but one part of the conversation yeah. like stigma for sure restricts and constricts people let's say who need heavily medicalized treatment mm -hmm. but stigma like you know when it comes down to it actually their access to mental health care is far more important than telling them that they need to feel comfortable about yeah. opening up and asking for help. Mm. I want to touch on your relationship with Rob and there was a quote that really stuck with me which said that um, you described your relationship with Rob as looking at the lightness because it's blinding and therefore not seeing the darkness and I found that taking that out of context that is something that I think so many people can relate to. You know, you know, I've had relationships with people where we do look at all the good stuff, we look at the, the high points and we don't necessarily see the kind of murky darkness that, that might be in the background that we don't really want to focus on because actually it's almost too hard to deal with I wonder if you could maybe talk about that so when I met Rob I knew that he had depression like fairly early on so I would say this was about four weeks into us dating he'd kind of mentioned that he'd had depression but as we've just kind of covered you know I had no idea what that actually was beyond feeling sad and I definitely didn't know that depression could get really bad or that you know he had chronic depression which is really full-on in terms of how regularly it would affect him how long it would last for and the kind of treatment and help that he probably needed in terms of tackling it. And I think that, you know, when you're kind of falling in love with someone, you're building this narrative that for sure is based on them, but it's also based on what you want from that person. And it's and it's kind of what you need to fulfill the things that you've been searching for and looking for. And I think that when I met him, I was in this really, like, pessimistic place with men. So I'd, like, dated some real turds, you know, <laughs> leading up to that point. We've all been there. Yeah, and I think that when we went on a date, I just had, like, no expectations. I yeah. just thought that this is someone I'm going to go on a date with, be polite about it, and then, like, never call him again. But also... Even if someone does say they have depression, it, you're not going to then, like, you I wouldn't run a million miles. Yeah. I would just be like, oh, right, okay. And the way yeah. that you talked about it in your book, which I completely would have been in the same position, is you're a bit naive about it because, mm. again, we speak spoke about it. It wasn't as talked about now as it is. We didn't understand it as much. And it was kind of one of those things that you'd maybe heard about and someone had been a bit sad, but then they got better. Yeah. So you wouldn't run a million miles and you wouldn't be like, oh, God, like, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, very interestingly, I so I was dating someone last year for a couple of months and it turned out that he had depression and, and basically had been on medication I think for quite a number of years I mean we're talking about like 10 to 15 years oh, wow. and that actually presented a very interesting opportunity for me to see whether things would be different I mean I think that with him you know I was pretty sure that this wasn't kind of going to turn into a relationship but I really liked this guy and actually, what was different with this 
situation compared to when I had had this conversation with Rob was that it wasn't that I needed to know the ins and outs of how depression affected him, you know, how bad things could get and so on, which actually when I looked back at Rob, I was like, oh, I should have asked, you know, all these questions and I should have gauged how full on it was because you're asking questions of someone around something that they've also grown up with the same stigma. So mm. for them to kind of access that and then articulate it is really difficult. Yeah. But also, they may not have a full understanding of how it has affected them because, mm. you know, Rob had a jaw diagnosis, which meant that he was also an addict for most of his life. And so there were like different coping mechanisms for him. Mm. With this guy that I dated last year, he said he was fine talking about it. He mm. brought it up in conversation, but it was very clear that he wasn't okay talking about it. And so for me, I figured out what the line was. The line wasn't whether or not someone. I'm dating, whether they have a mental illness, it's about whether they can talk to me about it in a way that doesn't make me feel like a wall has just kind of slammed yeah. down. Yeah. And it's not even to say, you know what, I don't want to, because he didn't say, I don't want to talk about it right now, but could we talk about it at another point? There was this wall, mm. I've encountered that wall before, and I just thought, I, I can't do this again. And I, and I just think that with Rob, it's not so much that a wall came up when we had this conversation around his depression. I think a big part of it was that it's very hard to extricate, but I feel like Rob had this idea of what he wanted our relationship to be like, what he wanted me to view him as. And that darkness of depression was just not part of the picture for him. Mm. I think in his mind, it ruined everything. If he could conceal it and keep it as far away from me as possible, then in his mind, that would have been a success. And that's just not how yeah. it works, right? No. And I guess being in a relationship with someone who has depression must be really challenging. And you spoke about a lot of the challenges that you were faced with, the highs and the lows. I think that's definitely something that I found really interesting was someone who has, they call it like high functioning depression where they can, you see them getting on with their day to day life and you kind of think, oh, everything's fine. But then you, what you don't see is the days where they can't get out of bed and when they are so unwell that they are in a state of not even being able to converse. I know that many people listening might find themselves in a relationship with someone who might have a mental illness or, or particularly depression. And I wondered if you could talk about, I guess, how you coped with navigating that situation and if you would have any advice for anyone else that would find themselves there. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing I would say, which I think if I'd just not done this, it would have just made our lives easier, is that we were obsessed with not making anyone panic. And so just letting everyone think that everything was okay and that we weren't dealing with this huge thing behind closed doors. When you're in a relationship with someone who is mentally ill, that expends a lot of energy because, it, I mean, emotionally, because your partner is not is not there at certain times in a in a relationship, let's say, with someone who isn't mentally ill. There's also just the practicalities of things of you needing to just do things around the house, uh, which normally you would just spread that work amongst two people. Mm. But there, there were like a lot of lengths that we went to so that other people wouldn't know that Rob was dealing with this mm. stuff at home. And the thing that I really struggled with was basically as the partner, you know, we would get invited to places 
and then Rob just wouldn't be able to go. And it's not like he would give me notice about it. It would be maybe a couple of hours before we were due to leave the house. He would say, look, I'm really sorry, but I just I can't do it. And in that moment, I would just get really upset because not at him, but I internally would just get very upset because I would think, oh, my God, it's happened again. You know, when is our life just going to get back on track? Like, are we ever going to be the couple that can just go to the pub or, you know, go to someone's house and me not have to worry about whether or not he's going to be okay? So what I would do half the time is I would just go you know, depending on the on the scenario, I would just go and then I would be at that person's house having to field like a thousand questions about was Rob okay at the same time as me internally wondering if Rob was okay yeah. and had I done the right thing. Mm. And I just think that when you are dealing with stuff in this situation, it's very easy to just kind of react to things in the moment and to do whatever it is that you need to do to survive in that moment and to keep your relationship going. But I think that it is worth asking yourself whether all of this extra stuff that you're doing, whether you need it, like what purpose does it serve you and your relationship and your partner? And if it is anything that is sucking like very valuable energy away from you Mm. it just doesn't you do not need to do it right now so you don't need to go to that friend's house they may have spent all day cooking food whatever that is not currently your issue Mm. like your issue is actually something much bigger than whether or not someone has cooked a meal and you don't want to let them down and I think there are so many times where I weighed up those options and I was like no 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 I need to go and would just then be stuck in a hell of having to just you know not being able to relax not having a good time wondering if Rob was okay and I really wish I hadn't done that and I think it's a two-part thing I think on the one hand I guess it's saving face we always want to make sure and this is something I was going to ask you about is a lot of the the time we do just say I'm fine you know how many times have you asked someone oh how are you yeah I'm fine and it's that kind of keeping up the pretense of everything's fine and I'm really fine and you know if God forbid you do say something's wrong or you know and I think that goes back to again the lack of understanding particularly with something like depression where you will have to cancel things last minute and that's just something that happens with people that are in that position and it's not rude and it's not something that 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 can be helped so I just think particularly with what you just said in terms of you feeling as though you had to keep up this sense of everything's perfect everything's okay I got the sense in your book as well that that extended towards your the network of people that should have been your support so you know, the only thing that I could liken it to was when I was in a very, very difficult relationship. And the last thing I wanted to do was to worry my parents. So I did everything in my power to make sure that they knew that everything was fine and that like on the surface, everything was absolutely fine. And actually, it got me into a hell of a lot more trouble because I just ended, it just ended up eating me up inside. And I think I, I don't know if I felt that from you, that you you almost felt like you were having to hold up this fortress around you of holding up Rob, holding up your face to you know your family your friends and trying to keep a job as well at the same time that must have been really hard it definitely was I mean I think at the time I didn't know any different so it seemed like it was the only thing to do like Mm. there wasn't I felt that there were no options other than to do that but yeah for sure I mean I think that you know my parents are horrified at all of the stuff that I was going through at a time where I don't think that they thought everything was great. I think that they did know that, you know, things weren't as okay as they should have been. But I don't think they had a clue. And I I think my sister also felt very similar. And I think that 
I understand why we do it. And I understand that, you know, you're you're constantly trying to trade off what the harder path is to go down. And maybe in that moment, when you're also dealing with really challenging stuff in your relationship that also affects how you feel about yourself, like, mm. you know, you're like how safe you feel in your own home and all of those things. And I think that Sometimes it's just easier to just tell people that you're okay. But I think that what I've just subsequently realized, I mean, the danger in sort of saying, you know, that you you just need to tell everyone what's going on. I mean, there is the danger in some of that, in that if your situation is continuing, you then every time you see these people have to have this update, right, yeah. where they want to know what's going on. And I, I just didn't have any emotional energy for that. But what I would say is that if someone, like, let's say you don't have, um, you aren't able to get counselling or therapy or some form of structured support, is that having, like, even one person in your life that you can kind of call or talk to about this kind of stuff is, I mean, honestly, that stuff is critical, like, mm -hmm. absolutely critical, because I think that it can just feel really chaotic and like it's just going to eat your life up. That, like, that's the phrase I used like it was going to eat my life up and his life was going to eat mine up too mm -hmm. and until I started putting some boundaries around that and just um, you know realising that I, I definitely did need support and help around it and that actually people did possibly need to know what was going on in my life mm -hmm. it just felt like it was never ending We'll be back after this Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. I wanted to talk about depression in the sense that you wrote this quote, which, again, really stuck with me, and I'm going to read it. It says, none of us think we know the cure for cancer, but we all think we know the cure for depression. And I wanted to relate this to the current world of wellness, which I think has a lot of flaws, and we won't go into all of them. But I feel like within that space, there's been this kind of undercurrent of messaging of, this feud can cure you. If you do exercise, it'll cure your depression. And I wanted to ask you about how you feel the narrative is generally in terms of how we talk about depression, how we talk about how we treat it. I guess what, what I've struggled with is that I feel a lot of the onus has been put back onto the person to cure themselves when actually what if there's anything that I've learned from you, it's that it's such a multifaceted approach. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. And it's not just about the pressure that's put on that person to fix or heal themselves. It's also the pressure that's put on that person to, for example, access services and help. Like, I can't remember who I was speaking to about this the other day, but we were saying that even the way our access to healthcare is set up, if you were someone who's severely depressed and you can't leave the house, 
Mm. How are you going to access that support where you need to basically go get a prescription or you need to do this or you need to do that? Mm. And I think that when it comes to understanding that the same approach to physical care is not the same approach to mental health care and it needs to be more nuanced, for sure. I'm a massive believer in that. But in terms of the... The multifaceted approach, I mean, I would say that there is a conversation that is happening around, for example, let's say depression, which is, yeah, I have seen the stuff which is around if you eat this, your mood will be better, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But I would venture to say that with everything, this is on a spectrum. And there are some people who may be mildly depressed who might find that going out for a walk or a run or whatever it might be will help them. Mm. It might be that that might be entangled with the fact that actually just doing stuff like moving your body is just generally stuff that makes you feel it should be part of your mental wellness. Because, you know, for me anyway, I know that it's not even so much going to the gym or anything like that. Mm. It's just moving my body. And I know that I feel worse when I don't. Mm. But I would say that my my take on it is that I think that there's space for all of these conversations to be had and mm. that absolutely if someone's going to do a post about food that has helped in terms of their mood etc etc then that's completely fine where I have an issue with it is when it is touted as the only thing that will help you or rather that you don't need for example, let's say you are someone who needs medication, mm. that you don't need medication because this is what you need to do instead. Yeah, I get frustrated when it's sold as like the silver bullet. It's yeah. like, if you do this, it'll cure everything. Yeah. What I felt, found difficult is there being almost like a backlash to, to modern medicine, to people taking antidepressants and almost like mm. that That for me is a really difficult thing to try and swallow. That I, I get that for some people they're not the right thing and I think it's really important to recognise, as you said, that there is such a spectrum and there is so much nuance within that in, in terms of how we treat it that you cannot prescribe anything to, to, like generally everything is so dependent on the individual however I think this messaging about you know it being about the food and the exercise yes those are two components mm. but they're definitely part of a much bigger picture that also needs to be discussed and I think medicine needs to be included in that absolutely I mean that question around for example antidepressants is something that almost always will crop up when I do a mental health panel chat with someone mm. And it's kind of always posed as, you know, this, uh, oh, well, do we really need medication? And, and I find it horrifying because I just think in the same way that you would look at physical illness, there are some types of illness that require antibiotics or like certain types of medication. And there are some that will maybe ease off and get better on their own without needing treatment. So I completely agree with you in that I think that that for me stems from the fact that, you know, there absolutely there is an argument to be made for over subscriptions mm. around like, let's say, antidepressants and so on. But I, I also think that it's, it kind of comes back to this stigma that we have around medication full stop, which is I, I get that people don't really want to be on medication. I get that they want some kind of natural alternative, but I just don't think that that's how it works. Mm, I completely agree. I want to talk about addiction as well. And I know this is something that's 
still very much a taboo subject. I think the mental illness and, and particularly depression and anxiety, they have been in the spotlight a lot more of late. But addiction is something that I don't feel has yet been dealt with. And something that I found really interesting from reading a lot of your content is how you speak about the way in which we deal with addicts and addiction in this country. You wrote about how we stigmatise addicts so badly that there's you know, almost no hope for that person to come back from that because it's they're not treated with kindness or compassion. Can you explain maybe where you think we're going wrong in this country in terms of our approach to dealing with addiction? The biggest thing I think is that I don't think we understand it and I think that we moralise it and even our approaches to various drug policies and so on, all of them are around you know, the idea of abstinence. And basically, the idea of abstinence is, if you can't abstain, then you don't deserve to be let back into society and have treatment and so on. There are other countries that have implemented different drug policies that have been hugely successful in reducing addiction. But our country doesn't seem to want to do that. And we Mm. kind of follow a very similar path to America, which also has a very draconian approach to drug policies. And America at the moment is in the middle of an opiate crisis. Mm. The UK is the addiction capital of Europe. I mean, I don't know if you can say that after Brexit, but you know what I mean. (laughs) You can Um, say. (laughs) So we don't have like a great track record when it comes. Like it's stuff that isn't really working for us. In terms of, you know, there are things being done like at a local authority level in terms of services for addicts. Mm. But I would say in terms of the general population understanding what addiction is, there is just not enough around that Mm. to help people to understand what it actually is. It's not to say that if you are a loved one dealing with an addict, that it is not infuriating, upsetting, maddening. I've been in those shoes. But I think that what I've seen is consistently absent, apart from when you're dealing with, let's say, addiction charities, which, Mm. you know, like something like Adaction, which is amazing, is that real lack of empathy, like that real absence of viewing the other person as a human being. And that fundamentally, if we can't, if we can't change our minds around that, if we can't fix that, this whole situation is not getting any better anytime soon. Mm. Something really interesting happened to me, which was I listened to a section of your book on an audiobook, and you were talking about how we view addicts. And there was this key moment where there was a homeless guy that was on a bench. You and Rob had driven past and he said, oh, he's an addict. And you almost couldn't believe that he was an addict because of the way that he looked. And that's like an instant kind of thought of, oh God, he can't be. And the perceptions that we have of what an addict would look like. The next thing I got out of this taxi, went into Sainsbury's to go and get some food. And there was a man and a woman in there. They'd just come out from, they had their sleeping bag outside. They'd just gone into Sainsbury's. And the first thing I did was look at them and think, I previously probably would have thought, come to an instant judgment about that and it just made me think and you know everyone has a path to ending up where they do and I think your story has brought home to me that it can happen to anyone it doesn't matter who you are falling into that place of addiction doesn't just happen to the people that we that we think it will you know what I mean like that person on the street has come from somewhere they were born they were loved you know we hope they have a story and I think developing that sense of empathy and understanding and compassion it's going to do wonders, I think, for, for how we then 
look to treat those people and look to help those people more importantly? Absolutely. I mean, the fact is it can happen to anyone. I think that when I look at the type of person that Rob was, you know, it was inconceivable to me that he was an addict. So I didn't know he was an addict when we got together. It's something that, you know, I found out halfway through our relationship. But like this, this guy was from a middle class family, educated, uh, professionally successful and so on. And towards the end, I could see how that could be him because, you know, we we like to think of ourselves as, as, you know, networks and so on who will catch our loved ones when they fall. But when it comes to addiction, there usually is so much around the behavior that makes it really hard to remember your empathy and to remember that this person needs a little bit of looking after. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you also need looking after yourself and, you know, to have your boundaries around that. But I understand how it happens and I, I, I can see how that situation of just leaving home and not being in your own home because otherwise the mess that you've created, the shame that you have to contend mm. with, that's how that happens to a lot of people. And I don't think we have a system that kind of then steps in place to help those people and to help them through recovery and so on. Mm. And that cycle just continues indefinitely but i mean i think that even beyond you know looking at for example homeless people or why people become homeless and stay that way and so on is that literally every single person around you has a story and has someone who they they probably know who does contend with mental illness or does contend with addiction and so mm. on that has probably affected their lives in quite a major major way yeah that really helped me to understand people i think a bit better definitely after rob passed um you threw yourself into exercise and i gather that you use it as a sort of coping mechanism which i'm sure we've all done at times in our life what role did exercise play in recovery from trauma for you? And has that relationship now changed to where you are now? So when he passed away, I was a runner. So I would run quite a lot. And at the time, it's something that I felt really suited where I was mentally because it meant that I left the house, I got out and about, I didn't have to talk to anyone, I didn't check my phone. I just felt that that kind of solitude is what I needed. Mm. I would say that I was never obsessed with it. You know, it wasn't like I would get agitated if I didn't go for a run. It was just something that fit really seamlessly into my recovery in that first year and what I wanted to do. And I don't think I ever had a morning where I just felt so awful that I didn't want to actually go out and do that, which mm -hmm. to me was a really good sign of, you know, just trying to hold on to that feeling. I would say around a year after he passed away, I decided that I wanted to get physically strong. And it was really heavily, heavily linked to the fact that I just couldn't really lift stuff. And like it was literally as, as literal as wanting to lift my own suitcase, move my stuff around my house because I, I was imminently about to move house and just realizing that I really didn't want to ask someone for help. Like I kind of had this vision of being this very self-sufficient, like one day living in some shack in the woods somewhere. <laughs> 
um, foraging <laughs> for my own food, which, by the way, I've abandoned that idea. But at the time, I was like, that's the goal. And so to get to that space, I need to kind of get a bit stronger. Mm. But then realised I had no idea what to do. The weight section really freaked me out. And then I basically just hired a PT and switched over. And mm. so it's not that I abandoned running completely. It's just that there was this osmosis by which I started weight training. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. And would occasionally go for a run. Mm. But yeah, in terms of like a, um, I would say it was, it definitely was a coping mechanism. Mm. And it was one that just felt really good for me versus, I don't know, something like drinking too much or something else. Did you find yourself doing those things as well? Do you mean drinking too much? Yeah, yeah. No, um, it was one of those things where I think I was conscious of it when mm-hmm. I'd asked other people how they had gotten through trauma. Mm. People would kind of joke but not really joke by saying like lots of red wine Mm. but I found that alcohol made me feel worse and I just really like anything that made me feel even an iota worse than I currently felt at that point in time really repelled me so it's not that I didn't have an occasional drink here or there but it was something that I knew didn't make me feel good and it wasn't something that I could use as a crux. You describe weight training as helping you to find your inner strength as you just said you actually wrote an article which I thought was great where you said getting stronger made me feel that there was one small corner of my life that I could positively change even if all around me was a wreckage and that for me was so beautiful and that like sometimes we do just need those constants you know getting up and going to the gym no matter what other chaos is going on around you that sense of like I'm going to go in I know exactly what I'm going to do and I find particularly with weight training it can become quite methodical like that you you do your lifts you know the weight that you're tracking I wondered if you could talk about how weight training really changed your your mindset and and whilst there was chaos going on all around you how it really made you find that sense of clarity yeah I mean I didn't have any expectations um before my first session and my trainer at the time was this like 26 year old guy called Tyrone and and I just I don't know how I must have been in that first session anyway he he like we talked through what I wanted to get done and he he created this program for me which um again didn't know what any of this stuff was But it was the combination of the fact that there was a program and I hadn't done programmed work for Mm. a really, really long time. It was learning something new. It was quantifiable gains from just being able to lift something heavier the following week. And it was weirdly actually Tyrone. Like, I mean, it, it actually was really nice to also have this very reassuring male presence for me that was just this guy who I could kind of like learn stuff from and maybe have a catch up and I don't think I realised it at the time but I really needed that like I really needed that kind of that solid male friend presence but you know what I think most personal trainers will probably say the same thing which is that we are a bit of a therapist for a lot of people that you're not their friend and you're someone that's kind of completely removed from their life and whatever and so sometimes you will get people that just suddenly feel that sense of god I can open up to you about anything because you're not really in my world so I can kind of say whatever I want and and it does become you know part exercise part (laughs) therapy session but I think that's really important and I think that's why I'm very passionate about personal trainers developing that sense of empathy and compassion and understanding of all different types of people rather than just honing in on the exercise and being very specific about that because I do think it's a very multifaceted job I know that weight training also made you and you've written about this feel different 
differently about your body. And I think it's really important to talk about that because I think so many people enter into exercise with a weight loss goal. And actually, that doesn't sound like it was even on your radar. I wonder if you could talk about how you felt about your body and if it's made you feel differently about how you are. A hundred percent, it has made me feel different. However, about 18 months ago, Tyrone buggered off to Australia, so I had to get a new trainer. (laughs) And uh, this is my current trainer, but he is actually a friend as well. Amazing. uh, As well as my unofficial therapist, and his name is Jack. And Jack basically switched me onto a different track, which was doing you know, a program that was like a mixture of weight training and accessories and maybe a little bit of cardio to powerlifting, Mm. which is competitive weightlifting. And everything that I'd done up until that point was still very like, oh, I'd like to get strong, but I still want to like, you know, look really small. And that's fine. If that is a person's goal, I I get that. Mm -hmm. I was in that place. People Mm -hmm. just need to do what they need to do. But with powerlifting, it was very clear that it that I needed to kind of change that way of thinking. That mm. if I wanted to consistently improve and basically be able to increase what I was lifting year on year, I was going to have to change my approach to food. I was going to have to acknowledge that at some points in the year I'd be bulking and then in some points in the year I'd just be a bit leaner. Mm-hmm. And when Jack mentioned this to me, my I freaked out because I did not... Because I could see myself getting a bit bulkier, and even then, comparatively in the in the powerlifting world, like I'm a peewee, I'm like one of the <laughs> smallest people there. So I don't know what my problem was, but I found it really, really hard to let go of that, and I really struggled with it. And I don't think that it really helped with some people in my life kind of commenting on the fact that my physique was changing, oh. and it wasn't necessarily. I don't think they said it to be nasty, but it wasn't really supportive, and it mm. kind of just amplified these doubts that I was already having. And I think um, what happened was last year, I just decided that I was at a crossroads where it was like I could continue along this road that I'd been on, which is that I needed to be strong, but I also needed to be small. But so being small meant that I'd have to put a glass ceiling on my strength. Mm. And then I just kind of sat down and over time had to think about what the pursuit of strength had given me versus and why did I want to remain as small as possible? Mm. And then just kind of found this middle ground where I was like, I needed to just let go of that. It was like a balloon. I just kind of needed to let go of the idea that my body needed to look a certain way all the time Mm. and to understand that actually the fluctuations in what my body looks like should teach me a very valuable lesson, which is that bodies change. They change according to the training that you do, to what you apply to them. Mm. So if you're having a day where you're freaking out, like when I'm freaking out about being bloated or, oh my God, am I putting on so much weight? It's nothing to get in a tiz about. It's like Mm. if I want to kind of then like trim some fat or go down in weight or whatever it is, I can do that, Mm. but I need to work out whether me sacrificing my strength is worth doing that and why I want to do that. And that journey, I think, can only ever look like it does to me. It will not be the same for any other person. Mm -hmm. I want you to talk about See My Strong. It's a community that you've created online. Can you tell me why you created it firstly and what exactly it is? Well, as is usually the way with these things, I basically was having a rant about the fact that I, I I think I'd seen something like 
the the way that something was being advertised in the fitness space and I just was you know really infuriated about it mm. and it was also about this fitness collective that I really love that that kind of always puts like the same like very 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 slim very slim bodies predominantly white and that's how they advertise their clothes and I would buy more stuff from them if their branding was a bit more diverse mm. And I messaged them about it and they said, look, we're really sorry, but these are the stock photos that brands are giving us so we can only use what they give us. And I just, yeah, I, I just got really, really angry about that because I just thought that's not a, that's not a solution mm -hmm. and this is just part of the same problem. So See My Strong was basically me just saying that I wanted to just create a little space, like a little corner on Instagram where I got to feature the stories because I'm a journalist and an, and an author and storytelling is my thing. And I think that when it comes to fitness, storytelling is a hugely important part of it, mm. you know, in the same sense that we're talking about, like, when you PT with someone that it's not just about physical goals. Mm. Um, for sure, fitness is is a hugely emotional thing for so many of us, yeah. right? But I also think aligning it with the right narrative. Yeah. If you only hear one story, exactly. you're only going to believe one set of results and outcomes. Yeah. If you hear all different types of stories of all different types of people, you're going to be able to see someone within that that you can relate to that will therefore mean that you are so much more likely to go on that journey. Yeah, ab and absolutely. And I've spoken to women who feel like that or if they only see one particular type of aesthetic, for some people who are, let's say, a little less confident with their um, pursuit of physical activity, they might just think, oh, well, but that's not really attainable for me because I don't look like that and that's not what my body looks like right now. And it's not not to say that there's not space for that. There is space for that. I think See My Strong was just saying there's space for more. Mm. You know, brands in particular can be more inclusive. Like mm -hmm. if we're looking at Instagram and you are a brand that's like featuring lots of different types of brands under that umbrella, I, I fail to understand why that isn't diverse you mm. know and so that for me is is just a space for women to be able to have their story told for me to also be able to flag out flag up like really cool accounts that I come across and just to remind us and to remind women that actually you know what whatever that your previous narrative around fitness was it's hugely fun it's so empowering mm. it can give you bucket loads of confidence like there is a community here mm. it's just sometimes really hard to remember that when you're kind of you know stuck in your own kind of like day to day and and just not aware that these people and these communities even exist i couldn't agree more and you're also working on a quite exciting project <laughs> to do with this i don't know if you can tell us a little sneak peek about it so i can i can do a sneak peek, sneak peek. Um, so i'm working on my third book <gasps> Which is, Can I just say as well, yeah. Porna is the most beautiful writer. Aww. Like you honestly, I know this sounds really cheesy and fangirly, but your books just make me, oh, they're, they're like so beautifully written. So yeah, I know it's going to be great. Thanks. <laughs> um, no, no pressure. But yeah, so um, the book, this is a working title, but it's called Stronger. And the idea is that it's a mixture of memoirs. So it's a mixture of my own kind of journey with this. Um, but I'm also going to be interviewing lots of, pe lots of women and also talking to groups and communities who are basically doing things to just encourage and help and foster that kind of sense of community. Mm. But the big thing for me with this, because someone said to me, oh, you know, but is this a practical book about like weightlifting? And I said, no, this is for all disciplines. So whether it's like running, yoga, walking, um, climbing, whatever that looks like for you, it's just that weightlifting happens to be my thing. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that I want someone to read it and at whatever stage they are with fitness, even if they haven't 
haven't done it for years or mm. they do it every day or whatever it is to read it and to be able to kind of tap into this huge reservoir that we have around being confident, about being resilient, about feeling empowered mm. and be able to use physical activity to tap into that and allow it to just spread into every other corner of our lives. I honestly cannot wait to get my hands on it. It sounds amazing. Now I'm going to move on to my final two questions, which I ask every guest every week. Um, so my first one is, what does strength look like to you? Strength to me looks like compassion and it looks like someone who might have their own stuff going on, but they basically reach a hand out to help someone else. Mm, that's so beautiful. And um, my final question is, who in your life demonstrates strength the most? Oh, Alice. Um, I would say the person who demonstrates strength the most is probably my sister, Priya. Um, she is someone who I think has dealt with a lot. She manages to juggle lots of different things from being a mum to being a science journalist and all of those things. And her kind of approach to fitness and wanting to talk about things and what she does, like also she works a lot in like science and medicine, especially. Mm. I just always look up to her like I'm her baby sister, but I always look up to her and I'm just like, God, you're so much more clever than I am. <laughs> and she always just manages to retain a sense of calm and a sense of humor around things. Mm. Just going back to one thing that we did speak about, but she seemed as though she was the most wonderful support to you in what was the she most really traumatic was. time. And I think that was really beautiful to read that sometimes in the in the darkest of times, you can have those glimmers of light where you realize who's really there for you. And yeah. I think that was so special to read. I just know that it doesn't matter how old I am. Like she is always in my corner and she is like, she has, so my niece is five and, you know, I call my sister a mama bear of my niece but she for sure is like that with me as well and mm. not in an overbearing way just you know if anyone is mean to me just know that there is this extremely <laughs> scary woman in my corner who will always back me up we all need one of those <laughs> Paula thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure I cannot thank you enough for coming on and for talking so openly about stuff that I know is is still raw and so difficult and um, I really appreciate your openness and your honesty so thank you so much thank you Alice Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Give Me Strength. We appreciate any feedback you can give, so please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast and come back next week for another episode.